Kathy, you and I got to work on our harmonization. I'm not sure it was exactly what he was going for, but thanks for that. That was special. So yesterday I was at a tournament with my family, and uh, my son Owen was playing, and there was one point where I took my youngest son outside, and then I was coming back into the gymnasium, and there's a million courts, and no judgment, I'm just going to let you know what, I know what I saw. Six, seven, eight out of ten parents around were staring at their phones. Whether they're in, oh, no, 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 wait till this next example. This is nothing. No judgment. Whether they're in line for the restroom line or whether their team was just warming up or whatever, everyone was just staring at their phones. No judgment. They were just distracted from everything that was taking place. You have kids trying their best. You have other parents to connect with, but people were just staring at their phones. Again, not a big deal. No judgment passed. However, Later in the day, I'm walking my dog, and I saw something that I had never seen before. I'm walking down this path. It's a nice path. It's a beautiful time of day, kind of that golden hour, sun setting, the whole deal. And I see this guy, and he's running, and he's not using his arms very much, and he's not running in a straight line at all. And I'm like, what in the world is going? I saw this guy coming for a while. Well, when he got closer, I noticed he had two iPhones, one in each hand. I don't know what he was doing, playing a game against himself, I'm not sure, but he was trying to run with two phones in his hand. He was completely missing it. He was distracted. A beautiful day, beautiful scenery, nice time of day, sunset. He was missing it. Sometimes I think we're distracted. Sometimes I think we miss the significance of everything that's going on around us. We don't always see things truly as they are. Our, pas- our passage kind of talks about that. It's from Luke chapter 9. Um, and I'm going to go over verses 28 through 36, even though I did this last week. There's a couple verses at the end. We're not going to get to them. Sermon chat. That's the place for you if you want to get to those. Just time. Uh, but anyway, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, a passage that will probably be fairly familiar with many of you. It says this. It says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him up, to, uh, up onto a mountain t- uh, to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as, fl- as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious spend- splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. While he was speaking... A cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered into the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, and together we say, Thanks be to God. C.S. Lewis. He wrote this. 
He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life to ours is that of a gnat. But it's immortals, people with whom we joke with and we work with and we marry and we snub and we even exploit. He says that because of this, we must take each person seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumptions. We don't always see things as they truly are, do we? How often do we see one another and consider the fact that all of us here together, every single one of us, immortal, untold value, completely unique, has the image of God. You think about the news of this week of Russia invading Ukraine. It's terrible. The loss of life, the displacement of families, the unnecessary violence, the terror, and everything else. In order for that to happen, there has to be an exchange. An exchange of seeing people as immortal and valuable and eternal and unique, made in the image of God. You have to exchange that for just a simple mortal nation expansion. It's a terrible exchange. We don't always see things as they truly are. And that's an extreme example, of course, but look how sometimes we treat one another. When we're not at our best, the name-calling, the gossip, categorizing people, quick to judge, slow to bring forgiveness and reconciliation, that is done to immortal people. That's done to eternal people, people made with the image of God, people with untold value. But what if we were able to actually see all people for who they truly are? C.S. Lewis says, what if we were able to see people as immortal? made with the image of God, eternal beings. If we thought of those things, if we saw things as they truly are, then violence, gossip, all those things that we quickly run to, those things simply don't make sense anymore. If we see things as they truly are, everything changes. Today we have a passage where a few select of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, they're given the gift to actually be able to see Jesus for who he truly is. And it comes at a perfect time. Jesus couldn't have picked a better time because it's at a time where they were actually beginning to get a little bit skeptical of Jesus. And we'll talk about that. But because of what Jesus does, because of them being able to see Jesus of who he tr- because of who he truly is, they begin to become followers of him, committed even to the very end. We'll go through it section by section, sometimes verse by verse. But the first verse in verse 28, it says, About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him up to the mountain to pray. It says eight days after Jesus said this. Eight days after Jesus said what? A little background. So the disciples of Jesus, in their time with Jesus, they saw Jesus do what he does. He taught with authority. You couldn't mistake that. He performed miracles. He wasn't like the other typical religious leaders. He would do things like call the religious leaders hypocrites, which they all knew, but everyone was afraid to say. Jesus wasn't. He spent time with people that religious people typically said you don't spend time with. They saw that. 
And on top of this, Jesus is beginning to call himself the Messiah. And right before this morning's passage, about eight days before this morning's passage, Jesus calls himself the Messiah, the one to save the world. And Peter agrees. Not a shocker. Peter's always the one to jump in. But he is the first one to agree that Jesus is the Messiah. This is a really big deal. Some, um, someone besides Jesus acknowledging who Jesus is. And right after Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, just a couple verses before what we read today, Jesus says this, the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raise again. Well, that statement caused a lot of problems. There's a problem. It's a problem for a Messiah to say he's going to die. That doesn't line up with their ideas of what a Messiah is supposed to be. The people back in the day understood it, that the Messiah who's coming, the one who's going to bring salvation to all of them, that's someone who's going to live forever. In fact, in those days, there were a lot of people claiming to be messiahs, and when those people inevitably died, like they always did, people would just point out and say, see, he can't be the messiah because he died. So for there to be a conversation about Jesus being the messiah, and for Peter to finally jump in to say, yes, it's absolutely true, and then right after Jesus says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed, it's kind of as if Jesus is disqualifying himself for the role that he's claiming to be his own. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's like, I'm going to be a Messiah. They think that means live forever. And right after he says, no, 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 I'm actually going to die. So this is all super confusing. This is all very disheartening for his disciples. They gave up everything to follow him. So at this point, they probably need some kind of moral boost, morale booster. So it says eight days after, thoroughly confusing the disciples, Jesus takes them up to a mountain to pray. Moving on to verse 29. It says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Can you imagine that? What in the world is this thing about Jesus becoming all light and bright? Again, a little background, I promise you relevance is coming. Before taking on human flesh, God had always existed, right? We talk about that especially around Christmas time. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God at the very beginning. And then the Word became flesh in Jesus. God is always described in the Bible, Old and New Testament, as light. In Jesus... The good news is that God, the creator of all things, that which nothing can be even greater can be imagined, God emptied himself of that light and put on human flesh. Dale Bruner, who many of you are familiar with, I know either from First Press uh, Hollywood or from Fuller Seminary, he explains God's willingness to let go of his light to enter into our world in this way. He says, Origen, the third century great thinker, he had a great analogy. He told of a village, a village that had a huge, huge statue. So immense that you couldn't see exactly what it was supposed to be or who it is or who it's supposed to honor. But then he wrote, finally, 
someone miniaturized that statue so someone could finally see who the person is that it was made to honor. Origen says that is what God did in Jesus. Paul tells us that Jesus is a self-miniaturization of God, the visible icon, the image of the God we can never even imagine. In Jesus, we have God, in God a comprehensible view. In Jesus, we have God's own personal and definitive visit to our planet. But in order to visit our planet, he had to empty himself of some things, including some light. He had to dim down the light to put on human flesh. So just shows that Peter, James, and John, so Jesus shows Peter, James, and John who he truly is when he shows up as light. So God is saying, here I am. This is, Jesus is saying, here I am. This is who I truly am. This is the truest thing about me. I'm the one to save you, but I'm going to die. This made no sense. Jesus didn't look like a savior. Saviors don't die. So at this point, the disciples have way more questions than they have answers. At a time when Jesus was completely redefining what greatness looks like. Greatness actually looks like emptying yourself of some of the advantage that you've been getting. At a time when every worldly rational thought would have encouraged the disciples, it is time to bail on the way of Jesus. This is not making any sense. At a time when the disciples had to be questioning whether Jesus was actually worth giving up everything they had to follow. And on top of that mountain, Jesus gives the disciples an incredible gift, a valuable gift, the ability to see him as he truly is, no distractions. There's one point while he's on earth where people are given the ability to see Jesus as he truly is as God, and this is it. They'd become familiar with Jesus's humanity, yes, but he is now giving them a sense of his deity and his divinity as well. He appeared as the blinding light he had always been before he emptied himself to walk our world. We've seen this before, right? This sounds familiar, right? If you think about in the Old Testament, what does Moses ask God? He asks God, God, will you please show me your glory? And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. You can't handle it. Because if you see it, you're going to die. And so God shows Moses just his back, or whatever translation you pay attention to, the behinds of me, his posterior, his back parts. And just from Moses seeing the back part of God, what happens? He completely lights up for the rest of Israel to see. Here the disciples get to see Jesus fully as he really is. Way more than human like you and I. The lampshade was pulled off and the full light of God was exposed. Can you imagine how unsettling this must have been? Can you imagine how scary this must have been? Can you imagine how mind-bending this whole situation must have been? And this happens in verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Now things really get out of hand. I can't even imagine what this is like. Moses and Elijah are there. 
Moses and Elijah haven't been around for a really, really long time, like thousands of years. And they're now standing in front of you in glorious splendor, whatever that means. To Peter, James, and John, Moses is absolutely top celebrity. You don't get any better than this. They knew that Moses was given credit for writing the first five books of the Bible, the law. So Moses represents the law. And then Elijah is there. Elijah is probably known as the greatest prophet or one of the greatest prophets. And Elijah is a prophet that is believed along with Enoch to what? To have never died. They were just taken up to heaven. We don't talk about that a lot. It's a little crazy, but this whole story is crazy. So I'm going to throw it in there. And because Elijah never died, when people talked about this Messiah, the one to save him, oftentimes they thought Elijah was going to be the one to come back to do it. So Peter, James, and John, they're given this opportunity to see Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets, supporting in and sharing and advocating the ministry of Jesus, who remember at this time, they were pretty unsure about. But this might have given them a vote of confidence. This whole scene, this whole picture of Jesus and the law not at odds, but Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus and the prophets not at odds. Jesus fills the role of a prophet perfectly. Elijah being there was proof that, yes, the Messiah is here, and it's not Elijah. The law and the prophets, they submit to Jesus. Both give a nod and approval to Jesus and the death he's about to die. In verse 31, it says, They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They spoke about Jesus' departure. They spoke about his death. Moses and Elijah came back to talk about Jesus' death. Question, what are the disciples concerned about? What are they unsure about? What has reduced their morale? The answer is that Jesus is telling them that he is the Messiah and he's going to die. Do you think it's possible that their concerns might have been lifted a little bit, at least a little bit, when you have Jesus taking on full light, speaking to Moses and Elijah in their splendor right in front of you about the death he was about to die? Do you think that helped them out maybe just a little bit? Can you think of a situation where the idea might have been given any more credibility than that? I can't think of anything. In my opinion, that's a pretty good validation for Jesus' plan. Moving on to verse 32. Peter and his, command, and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Peter is someone who we, we believe is not really okay with silence. He's not okay just being. Maybe that's why he was the first to do everything, walk on water, claim Jesus was the Messiah. He's always the one to get up and go. He doesn't let the game come to him. You know what I mean? He has no chill, as my daughter would say. So he quickly makes this suggestion that they build shelters, three shelters, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. And the recommendation probably came from a good place, 
The recommendation probably had good motivation, but as we'll see, it's such a poor idea. It's so out of place that God, literally God, interrupts him and just is stock talking. In verse 34, it says, while he was speaking, while Peter was still speaking about his campaign plan, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered into the cloud. A voice uh, from, came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So God cuts off Peter for his unhelpful talk about a building campaign. And God brings a cloud so thick that it causes them fear, as though they're not already fearful from seeing Jesus as light and Moses and Elijah there. I don't know why that's in there. But now, with the cloud, apparently everybody's scared. And God cuts off Peter and repeats the very similar words that we've heard even at Jesus' baptism. Very similar. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This is really important. Because think about who's there. Peter, James, and John, who are three people who have a lot of influence on the fact that we're here today. Peter, James, and John. What does God say? Listen to Jesus. Who's there? Moses. The king of religion, the king of the law, the king of the Jewish people. He's there. What does God say to him? Listen to Jesus. Elijah, the prophet, Probably one of the people who is best at looking back at the law and reminding people what God wants. What does God say to him? Listen to Jesus. The law, rules, religion, prophets, Peter, James, and John, really important people. Everyone, Jesus is the answer. He's the one we're concerned about. This had to be too much for Peter, James, and John to take in. And then it says, when the voice had spoken... They found Jesus was alone, so everything else just leaves. The disciples kept this to themselves, and they did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. It says the disciples kept this to themselves. That is true for a while, at least. But later, they wrote about this. Peter wrote about this in his letter in 2 Peter, because you can't not write about a situation like that. How could you not speak of an event like this where you were given the gift, the grace to see Jesus for who he truly is at a time of your life and a time of your ministry where you were completely unsure. My question for us from this passage is, do we take time to see things as they actually are? Are we like the guy distracted by two cell phones when you're trying to run on a path when God's beauty is all around us? Are we guilty of that? Do we miss seeing one another as we truly are, all of us immortals, eternal, divine with the image of God, complete with complete untold value? And then when we claim to follow Jesus, are we talking about Jesus as he truly is, the light of the world who set everything aside in order to come into our reality to save us and to show us what true life is like? Do we see Jesus as he truly is? May we take the time with one another. May we take the time in our time with God to see things as they truly are. May that be true of every single one of us. And may we be changed just like Peter, James, and John. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.